Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started uh, our series on Matthew, uh, which is actually incorporated in a larger series on law, which is really begins with natural law, because natural law is the law if we're using these terms, these phrases, to define ideas, and of course, in the book Covenants of the Gods, I begin it with, words are symbols of ideas. And so we have thoughts in our head and opinions in our mind. Uh, we look out in the objective world and we form subjective opinions about the world, what we see. We believe we see what we see, and we believe what we think we see is what is actually there. But it, we may be wrong. We may be missing it, misinterpreting what we're seeing. I mean, sight itself is an amazing thing that we look out into the world and we see objects that are reflecting light back into our eyes. And our eyes send what they see, what they perceive, what is received through our eyes into our brain, and our brain interprets what our eyes is projecting on the back of our lenses, uh, of our, the back of our eyeballs, where we're receiving this light. That's an amazing concept. Uh, animals have it, fishes have it, bugs have it. Uh, everything has this ability to perceive the world around them through their eyes. Well, we also perceive the world around us through our other senses, through touch and through smell, and all that input goes into our mind and our mind interprets it. When a child is first born, it can't see hardly anything. It sees some sort of light, but it has to learn how to interpret all the images that are coming into its eyes and figure what it is. If, if a child is born blind, it has to determine the world around it through touch and through smell and through the the hearing of what they hear around them. And then become, supposedly, those senses become heightened to compensate for the loss of our eyes. But the reality is, is everything is dependent upon our brains to interpret those senses. We're sentient beings. We're creatures that sense the world around us. We're aware of the world around us. And anyone of any age whatsoever realizes pretty quick that everybody doesn't see the world the same as they do. They Their interpretation is often quite different. They get the same facts. They get the same information. They see the same event. But they see it differently. They interpret it differently because of what's already in their mind, what they're willing to see, uh, the distractions around them. You know, the, the old uh, gorilla in the room, uh, you can pull up a video where people are told to watch 
I guess a lot of times it's like a passing a basketball around in a room full of people. And you're supposed to count or do some sort of task with watching this basketball. And, uh, and somebody walks into the room with a gorilla suit on. And almost nobody, later on when they're asked to say what they saw while they were passing, you know, how many times did it pass or whatever the question was, Nobody noticed the gorilla. Almost nobody notices the guy in the gorilla suit. <laughs> yes. Because their attention is so focused on their assigned task that they don't know that this disruptive thing came into the room. They just are oblivious to it. And you think, well, how could, you're, you're watching, you know, then they show the video, they take a video of the whole thing, and they show the video, and the people think, well, that, well, where'd the gorilla come from? <laughs> they didn't even see it. And, and, you know, and there's, you know, when I was first introduced to this idea, it was, uh, in dealing with witnesses on the witness stand and law when you're, uh, in a courtroom. And you're asking witnesses to testify as to what they saw. And they can all say something different. They all were there, but they saw the events differently. They fill in spots that never occurred. They leave out stuff that did occur that was extremely obvious. Uh, and you begin to realize that eyewitnesses aren't that good a source of information about a particular event. Somebody who actually was there and saw everything, heard everything, they're not always accurate. And, of course, that's why the Bible says you have to establish everything with two or more witnesses. And we pointed out earlier in this series on the law that O.J. Simpson could not have been convicted of murder according to the law as written down in the Torah. Because there were two eyewitnesses to the murder. There's only circumstantial evidence that puts O.J. Simpson at the scene. And and no evidence that he actually committed the murder except for vague circumstantial evidence. And, of course, he was eventually acquitted because if they don't fit, the gloves don't fit, then you must acquit. (laughs) That was the the testimony of the lawyer. And the the gloves certainly did not fit. Uh, They hadn't shrunk up that much. They did not fit. So the blood-soaked gloves didn't fit O.J. Simpson. Well, there's all kinds of things in that trial that were bizarre is that... uh, uh, the socks that uh, supposedly he took off and went and took a shower that were soaked with blood all the way through, uh, socks that would have been inside his shoes and yet had blood all through the shoes. I mean, all, would have had blood all through the shoes in order to be soaked in the way they were, were dropped on a white carpet floor and no footprints from the bloody feet walking across the floor. And so that, 
and so the evidence appeared to have been placed there by a detective who moved eventually to Idaho, <laughs> who was trying to plant evidence to convict O.J. Simpson. There were all kinds of bizarre things in the trial that were, that came out, but the essence of it, you know, whether he was guilty or not, I think obviously there were people murdered. Uh, obvious there were somebody with the murderer based on testimony of hearing voices back there uh, telling the person, you know, talking when the murder supposedly took place. And, of course, the voices that this eyewitness on the street heard, that's one testimony. And uh, he doesn't even know who it was who was saying what. But there was a conversation going on there. So there sounds like there were more than three people at the present time of the murder. So who was the fourth person? Who were these other people moving around? What was going on? Uh, I have my theories about it. But according to the Bible, you could not have convicted O.J. Simpson of the crime in a court of law. Because there were not two eyewitnesses, and you need that for a capital crime. So, justice is a difficult thing to obtain when you have to depend even upon two witnesses, because witnesses don't always see the same thing. So, the Bible itself is a witness written down by somebody long time ago. Moses supposedly wrote the Torah. And uh, other books of the Bible were written by other prophets. and uh, so, But that was long before the New Testament. Now we have the New Testament and the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. And we talked about this in the earlier show. Who's Matthew? They really don't know who Matthew is. They know very little about Matthew. He was a Jew. He seemed to be a scholar. Uh he he lived around 80 or 90 CE, maybe as late as 110 CE. He wasn't the Matthew that was in the Bible. Who, what was his sources? Uh, was his sources Mark? What, and then who was Mark? Again, we were pointing out that most scholars agree that Mark never was even in Judea. He didn't seem to know where things were. How close they were, how far apart they were. Doesn't mean he didn't know the story. And, and there's all kinds of conjecture as to who Mark was. So these are the, the critical Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we really don't know much about the authors. But these are our witnesses. And these are the books that have come down to us. Now we read them. Do we read them in the... The Hebrew, do we read them in the Greek? Oh, do we have any original copies? No. Again, they're passed down to us. But what, what can we learn from reading the Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, which emphasizes Jesus' teachings probably as much, if not more, than any of the other Gospels? Young man... At the tomb, we talked about this in the original uh, show on Matthew, and in one interpretation, it's an angel, and another one, it's a young man. 
Are these critical things? They're symbols of ideas. What's an angel? Well, in the original Greek text, an angel is a messenger. Well, a young man is a messenger. So a young man can be an angel if he's a messenger. When they say a young man, they're saying somebody who appeared as a young man. To whom? To what witness? The fact is, is we're seeing a testimony. What we want to understand from the gospel that was written to Greek-speaking Jewish Christian communities by somebody by the name of Matthew is we want to understand the message of Jesus Christ recorded in that gospel, which means good news. And that's why we read Matthew, is to find out what was Christ really telling us. What was Jesus, the man, speaking to people about? Uh, everything that we see in the gospel, will, as we go through it, is not written to everybody. But it was important enough that Matthew included it. And there's a lot of red letter lines throughout the, uh, the, the story of Jesus Christ. So why does he begin with Matthew 1? This book of generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judas and, and his brother, brethren. And Judas begot Pharaoh and Zerah and, uh, of Tamar. And Pharaoh begot Ezram, and Ezram begot Aram. Why are they going through all these people? telling us generation after generation, uh, which mentions uh, uh, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David, the king. And so that does get important when we get to that, because it was prophesied that Boaz would, uh, would, and Ruth would, be the progenitors of the Messiah. The Messiah was eventually going to come from their bloodline, which is strange because Ruth was from this other group of people. But yet, that's what was prophesied, and along comes Jesse, and then comes David, who is the king. Well, if we understand the context of this in the whole relationship of the Bible, if we go back to Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen, and it's telling us what to write down in a constitution, if we decide to have a king, a chief executive officer, a ruler of the people, because for hundreds of years, Israel had no central ruler, had no central legislature, had no real central judiciary. They had a system of a judiciary. They had what we call the cities of refuge, which, as we explained, we actually have a uh, a place where uh, we talk about the cities of refuge at Preparing You. And that, of course, would be very important understanding law is to go back and find out what the cities of refuge were. Because some people interpret the Bible, the Old Testament, that if you committed a murder, like if you did have two witnesses that saw O.J. commit a murder, and we knew 
O.J. committed the murder. And we're now going to try O.J. If he was really fast runner, he could get to the city of refuge and you couldn't kill him. You couldn't punish him. He could live in the city of refuge for the rest of his life and you couldn't touch him. According to some people's interpretation of the Old Testament, fast runners can get away with murder according to the biblical text, as some people interpret it. Is that true? Is that really what they were writing about there? Well, actually, no, that's not what it was all about. What the uh, cities of refuge were, were appeals courts, composed of men who provided other services throughout the kingdom of God. The, what we call Israel, the place where God prevails, where no other king like Nimrod wouldn't prevail there. Uh, the, uh, Cain wouldn't prevail there. The king of Sodom and Gomorrah wouldn't prevail there. God would prevail there in Israel because there was no king because all the people were kings in their own house. In uh, the Constitution of the United States, they have a chief executive officer. And we can change them every four years. And with impeachment, we can change them every year or several times a year. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and actually, we see Rome doing that where they had, they had a commander-in-chief uh, who was called an imperator. That's what co- imperator means, is a commander-in-chief. But they had other branches of government. They had the Senate, which was their legislature, and that was one branch of their government. And they had a judiciary. Uh, judges, federal judges, imperial judges, we can call them, throughout the empire of Rome. They had local judges too, but local judges were usually picked locally. But local judges had to decide cases based on the overall encompassing law. Internally, within their their provinces, they could make certain decisions if you broke certain laws and apply certain laws. But certain things you could not do. You could not, you know, like it's a common theory amongst people who study the Bible that the reason... The Pharisees brought Jesus to be judged by Pontius Pilate as they didn't have the power to put somebody to death because only the Romans could decide to put somebody to death. That's absolutely not true. They had the power to impose a death penalty on somebody if they committed a capital crime. What they did not have a power to do is execute somebody who claimed to be the king for claiming to be the king. That was only the province of Rome because Rome had been brought in, invited in to Judea for the purposes of determining who was the rightful king way back with Pompey. If you don't know that history, before you read the Bible, you're liable to misinterpret what you're reading. Because every time you read any book, every time you look out the window, 
every time you look down the road, every time you look at a car engine, when you lift up the hood, you determine what you're looking at based on what you already know. Nobody can tell me the Bible interprets itself. Because it doesn't. It just sits there. It's just a book. You interpret it based on what is already in you. What is already in your mind. What is already in your heart. You will interpret the Bible. Now, you can get all kinds of help. We can help you, tell you stuff. But what we tell you, how do you know if what we tell you is true? How do you know if what you learn in school is true? How do you know what you hear on the news is true? That's something that we've seen a lot of in the last decade. Is that the news media doesn't always, they call it the fake news. <laughs> and so, you you can't believe the news. You know, CNN, MS, or Fox News. Does Fox News always tell you the truth? No. They don't always know the truth. Sometimes they're overtly lies. Sometimes they misinterpret things. They, they see things incorrectly. They have inadequate investigations of the facts. They have false witnesses saying that, oh yes, he said this, or he did this. Oh yeah, he tried to grab the steering wheel away from the Secret Service and turn the car around. <laughs> you, know, you can have all kinds of things that people claim, but that's false witnesses. So how do you know what is true? Well, this has been a problem since the garden, which is one of the first stories in the Bible, is that man had a difficulty in determining what was true and what was a lie. What was good, truly good, and what was not truly good, which would be what was evil. If light, pure light, is equated with good, and darkness, or shades of darkness, are equated with evil, then if you don't see the whole truth, what you see is likely a lie. Maybe an off-color lie, what we call a white lie. You know, it's somewhat true, but not completely true. But it's still a lie. And so when we're reading the Bible, what's really true? Well, we just look through the uh, first uh, six verses of Matthew. And we come to this point where through this descendants from Abraham, we get to Jesse. And Jesse produces David. And David becomes the king. Not the first king. But after 400 years, the first king came with Saul. Saul became the first king. You go back and you read uh, Samuel 8, we will see that if you're going to have a king, you're going to also have other problems, because he's going to take and take and take and take. And so, then we had Saul, then we had David. But we'll have to talk about this when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. So be right back. (music) 
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we see that Jesse produces David, and David eventually becomes the king. But, of course, even having a king was strained from the formula of God given to the Israelites to be the nation of God, the children of God. Because all of Israel was considered children of God. This is a very important idea to to hold in our minds when we start talking about Jesus being the Son of God. That wasn't such a strange idea to them because they all were sons of God. They were all children of God, sons and daughters of God. But there was something unique about Jesus. And Matthew tries to get into this writing to Greek-speaking Jews who had the customs and understanding of the Jewish history that most of the people who come to read Matthew do not have. They do not have a good understanding of what Jewish history consisted of. Maybe we should say the, the history of the Israelites, the history of Israel, because that history goes way back at least to Abraham, but actually goes all the way back to Noah and Shem. Because if it was so important, the book of generations from Abraham to uh, Jesus Christ, uh, which they actually talk about uh, uh, all the way down to Josiah begat uh, Jaconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, uh, Jeconias begat Selothiel, and Selothiel Zorobabel, and Zorobabel begat Abiud. Well, all these are people, and they all had a, a place to play. Some we know about uh, from the biblical text, some we don't. We, there are extra biblical texts that tells us about some of these uh, people. And who they were. And there's actually a conflict here of who is the son of who. Because there was there was a custom. It was a part of the law that if you... And, and this is where it came to what we talked about with Ruth in, in the first show on Matthew. Is that Ruth and Boaz were... Uh, Ruth was married to another Israelite who died without producing a child. So then when she went to Israel and she married Boaz, the first child that Boaz produces is actually counted as a descendant of Naomi's son. Because he is literally marrying her for the purpose of giving that son of Naomi an heir. And this plays out again later on in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But we won't go into that. It gets uh, too far a fetch. But knowing that background is a part of the whole picture of what we're seeing written about when we're reading Matthew. And many of the Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, were aware of all these other stories which each of these lives and generations, that brings us down to uh, the Joseph and the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, Jesus is called Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. 
meaning anointed, and being anointed means the rightful king, the Messiah. David was called Messiah because David was anointed king. But what actually is taking place in the law of nature when the people decided in Samuel 8 to have a king? And why did they decide to have a king? Because the judges were corrupt. And people just say, well, the judges were corrupt. And so they didn't, they didn't trust the judges. And so they wanted to have a king to make things right. And, and Samuel says, you know, if you get a king, he's going to take and take and take and take. He's going to take the first of your fruits and the first of your fields. And he's going to take your sons. Uh, and make them run before his chariots, and he's going to take your daughters. And they say, yeah, but give us a king anyway. Whoa, whoa, were you listening? <laughs> but they had corrupt judges. Could they have done something else to correct the judges? Well, if you don't understand what the cities of refuge was, if you think that it's, you know, it's a refuge for fast runners who commit murder, then, yeah, you know, What's the city as a refuge? Well, it's actually appeals courts. And who is sitting on those courts? The most charitable men in all the nation. And if they're, and what, what does an individual down there, you know, down where the rubber meets the road in Israel, how can he change those judges up above? I mean, if you wanted to change one of the Supreme Court judges in your nation, how would you do it? I mean, you don't do it. You, you, you have to depend upon representatives to do it, right? I mean, who appoints all the federal judges in the United States? Well, it's the president of the United States, the chief executive officer of the United States. Well, who appointed all the imperial judges throughout the empire of Rome at the time of Jesus Christ? Well, that was the emperor? No, it actually had an office that was actually titled to the office. And it often was the emperor, but not always the emperor. It was the apotheos, which is the Greek word for appointer of judges. It also could be translated appointer of gods, because theos is the word we translate into God, or gods, theos. Well, if you went into a court, imperial court, you would address the judge as Theos, as God of that court. He was the ruling judge of that court because that's what God means, ruling judge. So what about the God creator of heaven and earth? Is he a ruling judge too? And if he is a ruling judge, how does he rule? Does he sit up in a, you know, an elevated bench, you know, in a judicial court and he sits on a throne up there and he makes judgments on you go to jail and you become broke and you get a disease and is he doing all that or has he built his judgment into the law of nature well you know I'm not I'm not going to answer but we have talked about that I mean that's what the declaration of independence uh, nature's God uh, the creator uh, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. And this has to do with the law of nature, and nature's God. It has given us these rights. And 
which are also correlative to responsibilities. If we don't accept the responsibility of a right, we lose the right built into the system. I mean, you have a muscle. You're born with a muscle in your right arm and in your left arm and in your legs. You're born with muscles. Every baby comes out of the womb. He has muscles in his arms and legs. But they're not very strong. He can't walk. He can't even crawl. He can usually cry. He's got muscles in his lungs. But he has to use those muscles in order for them to get stronger and stronger. So if you want your rights to be healthy, you have to exercise your responsibilities just like you have to exercise your muscles for your muscles to be strong. It's built into nature. It's part of the pattern. And what we were talking about is this law of nature has built-in rules. I mean, we define the rules with our words. We write down, you know, e equals mc squared. We say, well, this is a rule. And it may be somewhat accurate, but there may be other elements that we didn't figure into that equation. And when we figure them in, we will get a bigger picture. But, you know, the, the physicist is over here looking at the world and the biologist is over here looking at the world and the psychiatrist is over here looking at the world. I listened to a, a, a psychiatrist and biologist. He's both a psychiatrist and a biologist. And he uh, is talking about uh, certain things that uh, he says that... Uh, explains the human conditions. He says the human condition is one of psychosis. It is... So what's a psychosis? Well, I mean, what is... Psychosis is basically, literally, it means soul illness. That's the Greek words put together. Psychosis means soul Ill, illness. And psychiatry literally means soul healing. Because it's from two... Uh, Greek words. I mean, you have uh, this word soul, osis, you know, uh, psyche, meaning soul, and osis, meaning an abnormal state. But what is the Greek word? Iatria uh, is the Greek word for healing. So, psychiatria, <laughs> psychiatry, is soul healing. And the same word that we see translated soul is sometimes translated mind. So, but this uh, biologist, also psychiatrist, believes that we're in a state of psychosis. And, and we've we talked about our society, which is composed of, composed of all kinds of people. If all the people are under a state of psychosis, then the whole of society is in a state of psychosis. And, of course, that's where comes the phrase, a new phrase that has come into our language, the mass formation of psychosis. But... The mass formation of psychosis is not a new idea. It, it goes all the way back to that Babylonian captivity. Where the people went into captivity in Babylon. And we have pictures of how, okay, they, they conquer Israel and they take all these people to Israel to be in captivity. In, they take the people of Israel to Babylon to be in captivity in Babylon. And the people are in a state of captivity. Their mind is in a state of captivity. And there are certain 
muscles of choice, certain choices they can't make for themselves anymore. Now they are in that captivity. We were in captivity in the bondage of Egypt, too. We can make choices about a lot of things during the day. But there were certain choices we couldn't make. We had to pay 20% of our labor into the government of the Pharaoh. We didn't have a choice about that. We were compelled to do that. And in return, the Pharaoh was going to feed us during a famine. But we lost some of our power to choose. When the people chose to have a king, Saul, they didn't elect him themselves. They went to Samuel and they said to Samuel, you give us a king. You judge who should be our king. And he picked Saul and they were happy with that choice. Even though he said, you know, if we get this king and we put him into power, he's going to have some of your power to choose. He's going to have that. And of course, if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy 17, they tell you to write out a constitution if you're going to have a king. I don't see evidence of somebody writing that constitution at the time of Samuel. But Samuel certainly was aware of it because it's in the Pentateuch. That the king, there were five things that the king could not do or could not be, that that were restrictions upon the king. That's what a constitution is. It's restrictions upon the king. And that's what, that's an interesting concept, because all constitutions aren't that way. Because constitutions, I mean, there was just a turnover in the government in England. Was it determined by the people, or was it determined by the bureaucrats? They have a little bit different way of doing things. America... The government of the United States is much more similar to the government of Rome because they had a commander-in-chief who was the imperator. That was one office. There was another office, Apotheos, a pointer of the judges throughout the empire, the federal or imperial judges throughout the empire. And the, and the third office was Principas Civitas, which is the first citizen of Rome and municipality. Well, all three of those offices were originally held by Augustus. He didn't hold all three of those offices every year. One was a ten-year term of office as emperor, but it was only a one-year term of office as Principas Civitas, which we would call president. If we were to translate Principas Civitas, that means precedent, the first precedent. We actually see that word used in uh, the apology of uh, Justin the Martyr, where he talks about a president of a Christian gathering. Of course, that, that president of the Christian gathering didn't have executive power over the people. <laughs> that wasn't the kind of president. But he was this, he was the presiding uh, person over a Christian meeting. And uh, he, he had certain responsibilities. But he couldn't, you know, force, he couldn't take from the people. He couldn't take and take and take like a king could. Because he didn't, the imperium, the imperial power, the imperator power, the power to muster an army, that was not given to the president of a Christian meeting. He he doesn't have that power. That power is in the hands of the individual. Like it was in Israel, before the kings. 
if they wanted to have a war, everybody had to volunteer to be a part of the army. They were already a part of the army because they were already organized into the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But they were organized by charity because they were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to take care of the needy of their society in a system of free will offerings. We see that word free will offerings over and over again in the Old Testament that was used, given to the ministers of their choice as a votive offering. And that minister helped take care of the needy of society. When that minister was given that free will offering, he presided over that offering. He now had a choice to make with that offering. Because Israel operated entirely by charity. There was no king to force the offerings of the people. They were they had that when they were in the bondage of Egypt. But they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And now they had a right to choose. And they could exercise that right to choose. Which would make society stronger. And we call that social bonds of society. Because those bonds were through charity, through choice. Because you, do, you can't have love without choice. Like I said in, in the original show on Matthew, a puppet, a puppet cannot love you. It's just a puppet. It only does what the hand inside of it makes it do. But you can actually choose to love your neighbor. And that's why Moses says love your neighbor. That's why Jesus says love your neighbor. That's why they both created governments in which you took care of the needs of your neighbor through choice. And that choice had to be based on love. In order to have love, you also have to have another thing that Jesus talks about all the time, which is forgiveness. Because in the government of God, the kingdom of God, that's what we're supposed to be seeking, you operate by faith, hope, and charity. And you choose a minister to help redistribute the wealth of your society, but you only have authority over your wealth. You don't have any authority over your neighbor's wealth because the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's more like a pure republic. It's not an indirect democracy, which is what we often define a republic as today. So, they mentioned David was the rightful king in this genealogy that takes us down to Christ. And we will eventually see when Jesus Christ enters what became the capital of of Israel, of Judea, the remnant of Israel, which they were never to have in the original structure set up by Moses. There was never a capital city. David started to build a capital city, a temple of stone, but he put it off because he knew it was wrong. David started to create a list of names to draft men into the army, but he put it off because that was wrong. Those are things that were written in Deuteronomy that he was never to do. He wasn't to force an offering of the people to take care of uh, military needs or social welfare needs or any of that. Because to force an offering would be taking away the choice of the individual people. And that would mean that the people were now in some sort of captivity. In Babylon, they didn't have all the choices that God has granted you. 
All those endowed rights that God had granted. They went into captivity in Babylon. They were in captivity in Egypt. But God delivered them out of that because the natural state of man is not captivity. It's where you have your endowed rights and your freedom of choice. I just had had to make a comment to the local sheriff. (laughs) He's running for political office and there's a measure in Oregon, Measure 14, I think it is. And they're going to be voting on it in a couple of days. And it's it's clearly an infringement upon your right to bear arms, which is supposedly protected by the Second Amendment of the United States Federal Constitution. But this is a state measure. So why is that? Because the states are subject to the Federal Constitution. But he wrote in a letter that he wrote, he was not for Measure 14, and he wrote in it, he, he mentioned the privilege granted by the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. And I, I wrote back to him that I took umbrage with his use of the word privilege. <laughs> it is true, I said, that the Constitution granted privileges, but those privileges were to the government, not to the people that the Second Amendment restricted the power of the the three branches of government to infringe upon, whether it be the judicial, legislative, or executive branches of government. And he, he being a sheriff, he's actually more attached to the executive branch of government, probably, than, but he's an independent law enforcer. But uh, anyway, don't want to get too complicated. But basically, that... The people are the fourth branch of government. You'll hear me say this often. And in Israel, that was true. They were the fourth... Well, actually, in in early Israel, they were the branch of government. There was no fourth. There was no king. So we didn't have that third. (laughs) There there was no emperor, commander-in-chief. There was no chief executive officer that was forcing contributions of the people. And there, there was no... Legislature. There was a Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin had no legislative powers. You can go read our article on Sanhedrin and find out when they got legislative powers. They couldn't make new law. The law exists from the beginning, from the existing one. So, the structure that Moses created, if you actually understood what was going on with their appeals courts and with their charitable institutions which were their altars of clay and stone or actually charitable institutions. They're not piles of rocks. They're actually living stones fitting together without regulation coming together in order to take care of the needy of society and the needs of society. And if you don't exercise that muscle in the way described by Moses and Jesus Christ and others throughout history, then your society is going to get sick and weak. Yeah, I broke my wrist in three places once on a motorcycle. Actually, I wasn't on the motorcycle when I broke it, but I was on it just shortly before I broke it. <laughs> so anyway, but anyway uh, I broke it in three places and had to put a cast on it, and uh, the cast was on it for about a month or so, and then but I never missed a day of work all that time. And uh, I had physical labor work at that time. 
uh, as an employee. And, uh, and, uh, but I did miss a half a day of work when I went to have the cast cut off. I had to go to the doctor to get the cast finally cut off. And when I got it cut off, uh, I missed uh, the first half a day of work and I, my arm was so weak when they took that cast off. I mean, I was actually nauseated at moving it. It been a, it, it had damaged the elbow as well, and so the cast was covering a large part of the arm. But I mean, I couldn't hardly even use it, and I had to use that arm in in my work. So I missed the half day, the second half day as well. So that was the only time I missed because if you don't use it, you lose it. And so if you structure your society where you do not have the choice to love your neighbor as yourself, you will destroy, atrophy those bonds of society and your society will be sick and degenerate and be destroyed. And we'll tell you more about that and what Matthew is ultimately telling you when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, it is it is not enough just to read the Bible and to generate an emotional feeling when you're reading the Bible and the biblical text and the story of Christ and the, you know the the things that Christ went through and uh, and these different stories because they can generate a feeling, but they aren't awakening in you. Uh, the true Holy Spirit that is going to help you see and interpret the world as it really is. And the, the world including the law of nature and nature's God. Something else must be used and we'll talk about that in a lot, lots of different ways. But the social structure of the kingdom of God which Israel was the kingdom of God. Because Jesus said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to another group that will bear fruit. That's what that he says to the Pharisees, who evidently had the kingdom of God, were the remnant of the kingdom of God. Israel was the kingdom of God and Judea was the remnant of that at that time. And they were looking for another king. Herod had been the king. He had divided the kingdom into three parts. Uh, but not three branches of government, three parts. So where uh, Herod Antipas and Philip were part of that, but nobody sat on the throne in Jerusalem. And later, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, riding this borrowed ass, he's going to be hailed as the highest son of David, Hosanna, son of David. Which makes him the king. This is another way of saying you're the king. But what was David trying to do when he repented of drafting the people, repented of building the stone temple, repented of a lot of the things that he had to repent of, which was made him a king after God's own heart. Saul didn't repent. He fell on his own sword. He killed himself. By falling on his own sword. And unfortunately many people today are metaphorically going to be falling on their own sword. Because they will not repent. Look differently at what they're doing. So 
I, I quote here Dr. Malone, who recently said, or fairly recently said during the whole COVID thing, uh, we're sick as a society. And we have to heal ourselves. And one of the things that we have to do is come together. We have to recreate our social bonds. We have to buy into integrity. The importance of human dignity. The importance of community. That's how we get out of this. Referring to the lockdowns and the strange uh, changes in government, the overreaching power of government, and, and uh, so many other things that we see going on in the news today. Just crazy things that we see on a regular basis that, you know, in Nigeria, uh, there's, there's a war on Christians. Hundreds and hundreds of churches have had to close down. Thousands of people have been murdered. Uh, and they're Christians. They're attacking Christians in Nigeria. And they have a number of things that they were complaining about. Maybe we'll talk about that in the afternoon show. But uh, many of the same things that they're complaining about were seeing evidence creeping in, seeping in. You know, like a like a dam with a leak in it, and you can stick your thumb in it and stop the leak. But then, if you don't, the dam may suddenly burst open. But we see it happening in America. One of the things was that people are arrested without charges and kept in prison for long periods of time. Well, you're January six guys. Uh, what what's going on there? It's a gross miscarriage of justice, the way these people are kept in jail for long periods of time, no bail. They're not a threat to society. They're not endangering society. But they're in there, and the people can't do anything about it. Because their cities of refugees are corrupt. Their appeals courts are corrupt. Their system is corrupt. It's politicized. It's doing the bidding of men who want to rule over you. They're not doing the bidding of the people. They're not institutions of the fourth branch of government. They're institutions of corrupted three branches of government. That All the power has moved into those three branches of government and the fourth branch finds itself powerless because it hasn't been exercising its responsibility. And what Malone is saying is that we have to recreate those social bonds of society. And the importance of community. You you have the LBGT community and this community and that community. But they're not really communities. Because they have no communion. Communion is the sharing of bread. The, The apostles were commanded by Christ to make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. In symposiums of hundreds you know, fifties and hundreds, which makes 5,000 men in their families. A symposium is 10 families. A synagogue was 10 families. They all understood that at that time. And so if you read that and, and Mark, you, you know what they're talking about. It was just common knowledge. They were talking about 10 families coming together in a home church, a house church, but for a kingdom purpose. To take care of the needy of society. Not just your ten families. But those families over there in Greece. Or those families over in Syria. Or those families in Ephesus. 
wherever they were. You were going to try to help them out through this network of charity, which made you a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. Because you had the social bonds that are only created by the individual choice of charity, the individual exercise of love and forgiveness. That's what creates the social bonds of a community because that community has a communion. They take care of one another. They were actually persecuted. They were killed because they would not sign up for the communion of Caesar, the free bread of Caesar, the community of Caesar. They wouldn't sign up for that. And eventually they outlawed private religion. And persecuted Christians more and more. And this is, this should be just reasonable. You know, even, even the senator of Rome, Seneca, said, apply reason to difficulties. Harsh circumstances can be softened. Narrowed, narrow limits can be widened. Burdensome things can be made to press less severely on those who bear them cleverly, cleverly, wisely, intelligently. And that's what Christians were doing. The the dearths that were coming that we see mentioned in Acts, the the economic difficulties, the corruption difficulties, they were able to bear them by coming together and taking care of one another and the needs of one another. And when they saw the Greeks neglected, they picked seven men to help move the funds around and the property around so that they could feed the Greeks when they were having all... Because that's the waves of dirt moved across the Roman Empire into the land of the Greeks. And they needed to be helped out. And Christians, they couldn't go, they wouldn't go to Rome because those, that would be contrary to the doctrine of Jesus Christ who said that we were not to be like the governments of the rulers who exercise authority one over the other but call ourselves benefactors. That, we weren't to be like those men. So we had to take care of one another ourselves. And this is what the church was. And they couldn't do that at the loaves and fishes or when they worked daily in the temple unless they were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. In a system of free will offerings where the ministers fit together by choice. You know, Socrates said, employ your time in improving yourselves by other men's writings so that you shall gain easily what others have labored hard for or hard to learn. Yeah, that's why I always say there's two ways to learn things, easy or hard. You either learn it all yourself or you learn from other people's mistakes. It's much easier to learn from other people's mistakes. And it was a mistake to pick Saul as king. It was a mistake not to deal with, because they had a way to deal with that corruption higher up. They, they, they could do that through that network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because the people higher up were picked for those positions by the, by the ministers below them. That's how it worked. And we'll explain that in other places in half and you can, there's, there's a thousand recordings out there that you can go and listen to to find out 
what they haven't been telling you. But we need to, uh, we need to try to figure out by learning. You can read all kinds of guys, you know, like Marcus Aurelius wrote five books, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And in it, one of them, he says, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have uh, to complain of if I'm going to do what I was born for? The thing I was brought into the world to do? Or is this what I was created for? To huddle under the blankets and stay warm? That's a big problem in America is people going back to work. Going back to work to do what? We've lost the purpose. Work gives us purpose. Work is what makes us happy. But it's interesting, all the wisdom, he was the, had the worst human rights record for persecuting Christians. Because there was something that Christians were doing that was actually going to be the salvation of Rome that he did not understand. You know, he had all kinds of good intention when he started out, when he finally at the end of his uh, two and a half uh, uh, reigns of office, he was in office for at least 25 years, I think, uh, 10-year term as emperor. So then he was in the middle of his third term, just like Augustus. But he he complained that he had killed so many people, destroyed so many people, destroyed Rome, brought Rome almost to its knees, supposedly during what they call the Golden Age. But he debilitated the fourth branch of government of the people. He made them weaker. He talked about being strong, but they needed to actually be doers of the word. This is what Christ was saying. Christians were those doers. They were only about 5% of the Roman Empire, but they were not subject to the psychosis of the Roman Empire. Because in order to accept the emperor, Marcus Aurelius was considered the son of God. Augustus took the title of son of God. Caesar was called the son of God. Tiberius, Nero, all called the son of God. They're all called the savior of the Rome. To think that, that you could base a government, a system, on forcing your neighbor to contribute to that system and give it that power to force your neighbor to contribute to the government is psychosis. Because it is strain, it is an illness. You cannot obtain liberty by taking away the liberty of your neighbor. You will not obtain love of your neighbor by not loving your neighbor. You obtain love from your neighbor by loving your neighbor, by taking care of your neighbor. That is the way to healing a society. To have that community based on faith, hope, and charity instead of force and fear and eventually fealty, which is what you've done in America. And just like the sheriff didn't realize that Second Amendment was not a privilege granted by government. It was an inalienable right endowed by God to to protect yourself. But but it doesn't do any good if you're only going to protect yourself. You have to protect your neighbor. Out of love. Not out of anger. Not out of resentment. Not out of vengeance is God. You don't. Defend your neighbor out of vengeance. You defend your neighbor out of love for your neighbor. And you defend yourself so that you can defend your neighbor. So that you literally lay down your life daily. 
So, to get through Mark, at least the, this first chapter of Mark, we have to realize that Christ was the rightful king, but he was putting the responsibility of governance back on the people. And this is how you do it. You, you gather together in, in, in a group of ten families. And then those ten families will network together. You'll pick a minister and he will network together with nine other ministers. And then on and on until you got 5,000 or 500,000 people, families, that actually are going to share amongst themselves. Like Jesus shared. He took all the food they had and he gave it to the people. They weren't all starving. Nobody was going to take carts and feed 5,000 people by going to get food for everybody. But there seemed to be shortages in the camp. And if this was Feast of Tabernacle, that's unheard of. The whole point of Feast of Tabernacle is that all the people come together to share. And if they was a Feast of Tabernacle, they brought their provisions. But there was a shortage and people were going hungry. And they only had, the ministers only had enough to give, you know, seven loaves and seven fishes. I wasn't going to feed very many people. But Jesus didn't take any of them. He gave them out to all the people. And suddenly there was enough. And people say, oh no, he only organized them in the, the tens, hundreds of thousands for that one event. But that's, you never see them doing that in the movies. They always just, there's just people in baskets falling everywhere and fish appearing everywhere and bread appearing everywhere. But that's the movies. That's somebody's perception of reality that they are projecting out there on a screen for you to see. But they had to rightly divide the bread from house to house from the temple when they worked daily in the temple. Weren't they still organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Yes. And the history shows us this. But the modern historian doesn't show you this. Because he doesn't want you to know the key to liberty for yourself is to care about liberty for others. And the only way to exercise those liberty muscles is to actually create a system of social welfare based on charity alone. Not legal charity. Look up legal charity at Preparing You. Legal charity is when you force You're bound. You have to pay in to take care of your neighbor, to provide him with free education, to provide him with health care, to provide him with Social Security, to provide him with a fire department. We were just talking to people who were out here visiting yesterday about, we were talking about our fire departments and our EMTs and how they're all working together now. They're all voluntary systems. They're all voluntary firemen. (laughs) <laughs> we have the largest range fire department in the United States here in Lake County. Little Lake County. All volunteer firemen. They they asked, do you guys have anybody that you could help us with this fire? They had a fire up on the Forest Service. And they were afraid it was going to come down and jump the fire lines and take out the only town. The only town in Lake County. <laughs> Uh, incorporated city, which is Paisley. You got 300 people in Paisley. And uh, he said, yeah. And the guys showed up. They showed up with tons of equipment, all dressed in the proper gear and everything. And the federal guy literally started to tear up because he couldn't believe how everybody showed up. Well, these are the Minutemen. 
of Lake County that show up to help their neighbor, to put out the fire. But you didn't have that during COVID because you live in a sick society, as Malone was saying, that doesn't have a communion of love and faith and charity. You have a communion of force and fear where you force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You need to, you need to wean yourself off of that sick medicine, that addiction, that crack and heroin addiction to life by forcing others to take care of you. And this is what Jesus was doing. When Jesus became the Christ, the Messiah, he says, you guys have to love one another. You guys have to take care of one another. Like Gideon, I am my family. We will not rule over you. You have to learn how to rule over yourself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why they had a daily ministration based on pure religion, unspotted by the world of Caesar, the world of Herod, the world of Rome. They took care of one another. So that when Jesus was hailed, highest son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, thousands of Jews followed him at Pentecost. Anybody who got the baptism at Pentecost was going to be cast out of the social welfare system set up by Herod, the Corbin of Herod and the Pharisees that was making the word of God to none effect because it was based on forced offerings. You had to give in to the temple and to the temple treasury. The, the word Corbin is even translated treasury in the same Bible. But that's what you've been doing in America for a hundred years. You didn't do that in the first hundred years. But you've done it in the last hundred years. And you've done it more and more and more and more. And now you see the parties that are in power. And even though you have two different parties, one wants to do that twice as fast as the other one. But they both want to create systems and build up systems that force the contributions of your neighbor. That's not love. That's covetousness. It has made you merchandise. It has brought you back into bondage. If you're going to read the Gospel of Christ in Matthew, you need to understand that. Abraham left Ur. He left Haran. He set up altars of charity to take care of the needy of society. They could muster an army overnight when they were invaded. But the generations from Abraham to David were 14, as we see in Matthew. And, and, and then David to being carried away in Babylon. And then in Babylon, which is the bondage of Egypt in essence, where you are again forced to give up a portion of your labor to the Babylonian government. And they provided whatever welfare and whatever institutions they had. But you were back into that captivity of Babylon again. And then from Babylon to Christ with 14 generations. And Christ came to set the captive free. But he said in order to be free, you have to free your neighbor from your covetous practices, from your wantonness. You have to set up a system based on love. Uh, I recently added a pass, a pa- uh, page, Task of the Church, and it was based on a quote from uh, uh, John MacArthur, who is uh, 
who was stating the basic task of the church is to teach sound doctrine. And he says it's it's not to give one uh, pastor's opinion, you know, where he recites the things uh, to build up your emotions and get your interest and make you feel good and all this stuff. But it's it's the actual sound doctrine. Well, the sound doctrine of Christ is that you are to love one another, not covet one another's goods, not depend upon the world, the the constitutional orders and systems of government, to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, to be your benefactor through the exercise of authority. That is the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. He said it was not to be that way with you. In order for it to not be that way with you, it means that the church has to command that the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and actually start sharing in love for one another in order to build those social bonds of society that will take care of one another. Somebody called me this week. I'm going to try to call him back this this afternoon, I think he's down in Nevada part of the time, or California. And he had been listening to us for a long time, and then uh, seemed to got distracted by all the things of the world. And now he he wants to see if he could be a part. All the people that have come to the network, and everybody should come to the network, everybody should join the network, and the network is an opportunity to find other people in your area. And when other people come to us because they hear us on the radio or they hear us on YouTube or they hear us on podcasts, and they will only hear us if you share these podcasts with them and and, and like them on Facebook or whatever it is in the social media to get the word out to other people. And then they can come to the network and you can find each other. Find other people that want to learn what it means, what what the doctrines of Jesus really mean to love your neighbor as yourself. To care about your neighbor as much as yourself. Until you actually sit down and start being doers of that idea, that word, that that concept, that precept. They're not going to be free. And if you were set free, you wouldn't survive freedom. And, and you have to see that, that that's what sound doctrine requires. That this doctrine of Christ it means that you need an actual daily ministration, not based on force, but based on love. You need to practice pure religion, feeding the sheep of your society. Not to the daily bread offered by men who exercise authority, but by the communion of Christians through faith, hope, and fervent charity. Not to the legal charity of rulers of the world that exercise that authority you know, through force and fear. I mean, we see that the same guys that are giving, just heard a speech uh, from uh, Joe about all the things that they're going to give you, all the uh, they're going to help out all the poor and all the needy, not the rich, not the, but, but the poor and the needy and all this stuff, by printing more money that's going to cause more inflation, which is going to make the needy more needy than ever. But he's doing it by force. He's not doing it by love. He's not taking money out of his pocket. He's not taking money out of Pelosi's pocket. He's not even taking money out of the rich men's pockets who put him into power. He's just printing more money. <laughs> There's going to be more suffering due to it. 
But a Christian should not be a part of that conflict. A Christian has another way, which they call the way, the way of Christ, which is not the way of the imperial cult of Rome or the imperial cult of the United States. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Kings of the Kingdom. So in Samuel, we see this birth of Jesus was uh, uh, to Mary, who was espoused to Joseph. And we get more of this information uh, about this in Matthew than we do in others. And part of that is because Matthew is writing Jews who speak a Greek which means these are Jews who probably read the Septuagint, which is the Torah in the Greek that was translated by 70 government-paid scholars from the Hebrew into the Greek. And the only other Hebrew text we have, other than some of the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff, which have parts here and there, but uh, we're often heavily dependent upon the Masoretic text which was somewhat, I mean, there's all these manuscripts, and, you know, I mentioned this just briefly at the beginning of uh, of Matthew as an introduction to, to Matthew, is that, uh, you know, basically, you know, who was Matthew? Uh, when did he write this? Uh, he He does talk about the teachings of Jesus, quotes them more than probably anybody else, uh, he does talk about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And then th- these manuscripts that we have, we don't have the or originals. We have copies of them. And who were they written to? And, of course, they were written to the Jews who spoke Greek. And so they they had read the Torah. Uh, they understood that the this office of king... Uh, uh, kings and priests. Because uh, Jesus was both king and priest. We can see that by the construction in in the Gospels, that he was both king and priest. Because if you have a little bit of background in who the high priest was, who John the Baptist was, and then you have a little bit of historical background that you know that there was all this turmoil. We know there was turmoil because it tells us in the Bible there was turmoil. But how much turmoil, how much political intrigue was going on? Well, we depend upon what we know surrounding the manuscripts at the time. And there certainly was a great deal of political turmoil. And the Sanhedrin had had more than half of its members walk out and then somebody had to appoint new members. Who were these guys appointing new members of the Sanhedrin? And were the Sanhedrin really supposed to be a judicial body and a body of court trying people? And of course we know they couldn't try Jesus Christ and convict him because he was the Christ, the king, the highest son of David, and they had waived the right to make that judgment as a people, not just the Sanhedrin, but as a people, when they invited in the Romans. And the Romans were the only ones who could make that decision. And we know that the Roman in charge, Pontius Pilate, said, this is the king of the Jews. 
So the guy who had the right to make that decision made that decision and said Jesus Christ is the king. People say, well, the Jews didn't accept him. Well, the Pharisees didn't accept him. Mostly the Pharisees, the majority of the Pharisees seem to not have accepted him. There seem to be some Pharisees that did accept him. But we know there were thousands and thousands of men in their families who accepted Jesus as the Christ. Because we know that at Pentecost. We know that at the Loaves and Fishes. We know that they they existed all over the Roman Empire. Almost immediately because there was enough of them followers of Christ to be persecuted all the way into Rome. By the days of Nero, which wasn't that long. I mean, there was Tiberius was the emperor when Christ was crucified. Shortly after that was Caligula. And uh, then Claudius. And then Nero. And so it was, you know, it was Claudius when Paul got to Rome. And he had... Uh, and he met the people there in Rome. But Matthew is writing Jews who spoke the Greek, read the Septuagint. They knew that the anointed, the Christ, to say Christ meant he is our king. He is literally our king recognized by Rome. And we know that that's what they did. But if you go back and read Leviticus four three or Leviticus six twenty or Exodus twenty eight forty one or Exodus twenty nine, uh, Samuel First uh, Samuel nine sixteen, all these talk about anointing the king. And Jesus was the anointed king. He actually had his feet anointed right away. Uh, by Mary of Magdalena, who was not a prostitute, <laughs> but a woman of Magdalena, who, who had sinned and was sorry that she had sinned and came to wash the feet of Jesus Christ with her tears because she was sorry for her sin. And I hope that the harlot today the harlot church today accepts Jesus Christ as its king and rejects the dainties of rulers. Like it says in Proverbs, the legal charity of rulers who curse your children with debt because they're only giving out what they borrow against the future and they make you merchandise because that's how you got to be merchandise in in Egypt. You had no welfare for yourselves. You did, you had to go to the ruler of Egypt to get your welfare. And he wasn't going to give it to you for free. You had to waive your right to a portion of your labor. In Babylon, it was even worse. In Babylon, you had to waive a right to a portion of your labor if you wanted to survive in Babylon. And you had to do the same under Herod and the Pharisees. You waive a right to a portion of your labor when you registered with the temple of Herod that he built, whether it was the temple in Jerusalem or the temple of Roma, because he built both temples, one for Jews and one for Romans. But they both were doing the same thing. They were providing the social welfare of the people through forced offerings. 
do legal charity. If you don't know that, when you read this, you don't understand what Jesus, how he was going to set you free. Because now Mary gave birth to this man who was going to be called the Son of God. He was going to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. That's what it says in verse 23. And Matthew is pointing this out to Christian Jews who spoke Greek. And so therefore he's writing in the Greek, telling Christian Jews what the gospel of Jesus Christ was all about. He's going to set the captive free. And at the end he he says that Joseph has this dream in his sleep and this angel of the Lord uh, bid him to accept Mary and her child and he became the foster father of Jesus Christ according to what Matthew is telling us. But if you don't understand that Jesus came to set the captive free and how he was going to do that, you're going to miss the message that Matthew is trying to impart to us through the Gospel of Matthew. And when we get into Matthew 2, we will see this visit of the wise men and the flight to Egypt and Herod kills the children and a return to Nazareth. And one of the interesting things is that in all my studies, I can't find any town named Nazareth at the time of Jesus Christ. No no reference to it in any other writings of the time. And there's an awful lot of writings of the time uh, of Jesus Christ, independent of Jesus Christ. Just, you know, documents about history and where troops marched and where, you know, they went and and where roads were made and all this stuff. And you say, so where's Nazareth? Well, we know where it is now, where they say Nazareth is, but he's supposedly returning to Nazareth. But there's a great deal of evidence that Nazareth was a polis, a city, but not a location, not a specific location. It was a people who gathered together and took care of the needy of their society through charity. They were Essenes, Nazarene Essenes. And they they did not partake, they did not sign up for Herod's system of social welfare, for Herod's system of Corbin. They took care of the needy through charity. And there's reason to believe that John the Baptist, who was the older cousin of Jesus Christ and son of a priest of Israel went out and moved the laver of the temple of Herod to the Jordan River and baptized people like they'd baptized people at the foot of Mount Sinai into a system of social welfare based on charity alone. Very clear from the words of John the Baptist. That if you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. Do the same in meats. That's the total of the rightful doctrine of John the Baptist. And it is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. But it is not the doctrine of your modern churches, which is the harlot church, which says, love Jesus, but go to men who exercise authority for your education, for your health care, for your welfare, for your, your dainties of rulers. 
even though we know they are deceitful meats and they run towards death because they're a collective purse, a socialist system which redistributes wealth through force, through legal charity. But Christ redistributed wealth through love, through real charity, through the choice of charity. And only when you use the choice of charity to take care of the needy of your society, only then will you re-strengthen the social bonds which will set the captive free. And that's what you need to know. What happens, one of the byproducts of legal charity, where, where the people become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, as Polybius said 150 years before Christ, the masses degenerate under such conditions. Why do they degenerate under such conditions? Well, basically it's because of the mass formation of psychosis. The psychosis is a sickness of the mind. It's where a disease of the mind, where the mind is separated from the light of truth, the the facts of reality, from the existing one. That's what God is. God is the existing one. I am that I am. I am what am. I am what is. That's that's the truth. It's not my truth. My truth is my opinion. But my opinion does not change reality. Reality is reality. So any divergence from that reality is a divergence from the truth. It's a separation from the truth. And we all make those mistakes. And those who see they made a mistake repent of those mistakes and goes back to the light. Those who refuse to see the the mistake, they put up their hand and they block out the light. And they put up other things like music and food and and sex and all kinds of other things to block out the light. To cover the pain of blocking out the light. And that's individual psychosis. But mass psychosis produces, it's when the masses become accustomed to blocking out the light. Accustomed to not caring about their neighbor as much as they care about themselves. But what it does is it separates them. And you know, in the four elements of mass psychosis, now this mass formation psychosis, this is uh, Matthias Desmond. You know, talks about this, and this is a new phrase, but it's not a new thing. It's just a new verbiage and, and, and phraseology and talking about an old thing. This idea of psychosis is, is a separation of the mind from the truth and a refusal to go back and see that I made a mistake. David was a king after God's own heart. We all have to be kings after God's own heart. We all have to see where we strayed from the truth. Where we thought about ourselves more than we thought about our neighbor. God did not create all these people and all this world and all this life because he cares about himself more than he cares about others. His care about others created the world around us. If we want to be a part of that living creation, we have to care about others too. It's built in to creation itself. And you see that self-sacrifice amongst wild animals who will sacrifice themselves to protect their young or to protect the whole herd. 
But what we don't see, that uh, amongst man today, we see this psychosis where man will sacrifice his neighbor and his neighbor's rights and his neighbor's freedom so that he can live. He doesn't care about his neighbor as much as he cares about himself. So he isolates himself from his neighbor. And this is the first element of mass psychosis. is prolonged social isolation, limiting interaction. When you do not take care of the needy of your society through daily charity, daily sacrifice, you isolate yourself from your neighbor. You just will automatically do that. He... The bedroom communities, we have this term we call bedroom communities. They sung about it when I was a kid. You know, houses made of ticky-tacky all lined up in a row. Where the people aren't really a community anymore. They're a bedroom community. They just go there and sleep at night. If they need anything, they go to men, you know, at the state capitol or the federal government or the bureaucracy. That's where they get what they need. They don't get it from the community. If you look at uh, community diary, diaries of people who lived in communities back in early America, there was a blacksmith, there was a candle maker, there was somebody weaving flax, somebody weaving wool, somebody spinning uh, and the, the threads for the weaver. And this was the community, and everything that they had in their community was made in their community. When they found the Roanoke community, they didn't live there long enough to make it all themselves. And so they found buttons from Holland, and this from uh, Sweden, and this from England, because they didn't make everything. Of course, they all died in Roanoke. They were all overrun by Indians who just murdered them. But... uh, in the communities in early America, they had to become self-sufficient, so they made everything. And so you had to do business with your neighbor, and you had to treat them fairly. And they talk in their diaries about how they they borrowed a horse, or they borrowed a plow, or they loaned this, or they loaned that to this neighbor or that neighbor. And they and we've done this out here because we're so far away. I have made a habit out of helping neighbors round about us and so that you know i have a tractor they just gave us they just gave us the tractor they didn't charge us because that we'd helped them so much they just felt like giving us a tractor but that's community and that that still exists a little bit out here in this remote area but in your cities people don't go to their neighbor to help one another that's isolation. The bedroom communities isolated you. The legal system of charity set up by FDR isolates you. The system of charity set up by Jesus Christ, by Moses, brings you back together. That isolation is one of the four elements of mass psychosis. The, the critical element is that you're not willing to admit you're wrong and willing to change the way you think. You want to think that your belief in your religion, your Jehovah Witnesses, your Seventh-day Adventists, your Methodists, your Lutherans, your Catholic, your Buddhists, your whatever, that's true religion. When religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. One way you do it brings you together and creates those social bonds of society. The other way you do it isolates you. 
Because you don't depend upon one another. The second element of mass psychosis is deprivation. Removal of normal comforts. Doesn't have to be a lot of comfort. Just some comfort. Uh, you know, one of the key things is also, they say, is anxiety when they list it off, but it's fear. Which is one of the things that Christ not only said love one another, which ends that isolation, but he said fear not. And and he, we see at the loaves and fishes that they are actually learning to share. We see that in the temple when they're rightly dividing the bread from house to house. What bread? Those people who give what they have to the apostles and to the ministers of their choice. And those ministers turn around and redistribute that. That's what we see in Justin's apology. That's what we're seeing in the dirts. That's what we're seeing. Paul isn't just going there preaching. He's taking up collections of funds to help other people. That's why they set up these seven men to to move funds around to buy what they needed, to provide what they needed. That's what the Levites could do before. The early church fathers, like Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, was saying that the early ministers took the place of the early ministers of the church took the place of the Levites. Well, what was the place of the Levites? Kill sheep and burn them up? Largest religious group at the time of Jesus Christ, the most favored religious group, the most admired religious group, did not do animal sacrifice on piles of stone. They said it doesn't say that in the Torah. They read the Torah and they didn't do that. But your preachers out there are saying, oh yeah, they did that, but then Jesus changed all that. No, Jesus explained what Moses really meant. What Moses was really saying. Yeah, the Pharisees had it wrong. But others were right on. And they became the early Christians. And some Pharisees became early Christians. I mean, Paul was a Pharisee. And he was against the Christians at first. But then somebody knocked him off his high horse. (laughs) He he repented. He was willing to say, oh my gosh, I've been wrong all this time. I've actually stood by and watched people killed for doing the right thing. Thinking I was doing the right thing. I was suffering from psychosis. A mass formation of psychosis that... The Pharisees were a part of. The religionists of the day were a part of. Many of them. But some of them said, no. No, that's not the way you do it. And so the Christians were no longer isolated. They had to come together every week, not just to pretend religion, but to actually practice pure religion, to take care of one another through absolute free charity. And so there still was some deprivation, but it didn't generate the anxiety and fear because they were told, fear not. Now, in order to have this system that doesn't isolate you, you had to have forgiveness mixed in with that thanksgiving, that Eucharist of Christ. That's what Eucharist means. It's the Greek word for thanksgiving. They were thankful for the opportunity of giving because we're no longer isolated. We're now, we will actually help out Greeks and we'll be down here in Jerusalem or we'll help people in Syria or Syria will help us because we cast our bread upon the waters. We're not isolated in our little home church group. We're a part of the kingdom of God. And we cast our bread upon the waters. 
Uh, but the the world who feeds on isolating you, depriving you, creating anxiety with that deprivation, they will offer you a single solution. Wear a mask. Oh yeah, now we have a vaccine. Take a vaccine. Now they want to force the vaccine on all school children. I, I guess it was the governor of uh, Florida, DeSantis, I guess is his name, Um said there will not be forced vaccination as long as I'm governor of the state for children. And uh, I, I think he means for everybody, but th- this is the thing is they want to make it a part, the CDC wants to make it a part of the children's schedule. Children don't die of COVID. But the number of people who are dying of heart problems and all kinds of other things has been going up, but you'll find out more about that. That's not the purpose of this topic. You go read uh, uh, what numerous scientists say, look that up at Preparing You, and find out what we said from the beginning. I actually looked up the timeline. Uh, the, the first report was coming out in December back in 2020, warning about this. But uh, we have links to that report in the article so you can go read that but anyway we'll we'll hopefully we'll next week we'll start on our, or soon we'll go to matthew 2 but until then a peace on your house and may god be with you but join us on the network and start seeking the kingdom of god and his righteousness and repent so that you can actually find it god bless You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.